Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, University Hospital, Gibbons PC, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, the Terrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care, Johnson & Johnson, Berkeley College, education prepares us to reach our dreams. Be inspired. The Fidelco Group. And by the Adler Aphasia Center, enriching the lives of people with aphasia, their families, and communities. Promotional support provided by Jaffe Communications, supporting innovators and changemakers with public relations and creative services. And by Meadowlands Chamber, building connections, driving business growth. This is Steve Adubato. This is also Think Tank, and I'm with my colleague, Nicole Swinerton, our senior producer of Think Tank. Nicole, we have a compelling program um, that talks about the role of not-for-profits in the age of COVID. We're joined by my sister, Michelle Adubato, who is the CEO of the North Ford Center, a not-for-profit organization, Newark Marsha Atkin, who is the head of the Healthcare Foundation in New Jersey, and Newark Councilman Anibal Ramos, talking about the role of not-for-profits um, in the age of COVID, compelling conversation. Absolutely, I think that you can really look at this conversation and take away the fact that Newark really can be looked at as a case study, as a urban community that got hit, by, hit really hard by COVID. And we can look at how the community responded, whether that be the nonprofits, the foundations, the elected officials, all of the different um, sectors that really responded to this crisis and mm. helped get Newark back on their feet. Absolutely. By the way, let's thank our funders. Absolutely. So we'd love to thank RWJ Foundation, University Hospital, Horizon, and Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. And by the way, on the back end of that conversation with uh, Michelle Adubato, Marsha Atkin, and Councilman Anibal Ramos, a compelling conversation with Patrick Colligan, who is the head of the state PBA, the, the police in the state of New Jersey. We talk about, uh, he actually said he believes that police are under siege. Yeah, I mean, Patrick Colligan and the entire police force are in a really interesting position as we've seen um, so much, frankly, police brutality go on in this country um, for so long, and especially the fact that it's all being recorded right now on video. So we are all seeing this happen. So um, I think that hearing from the perspective of the police and the what they need to become a better police force is really interesting and important to hear from him. Well said. Without further ado, this is Think Tank. Hi, this is Steve Adubato. We are, in fact, as you can tell, coming to you remotely. It is uh, my honor to introduce a very special um, set of guests. And this is, by the way, this program is all about the role of not-for-profits, nonprofits in the age of COVID, and also looking at the experience of a particular community in Newark, New Jersey, that I grew up in, the North Ward of Newark, and it's the impact that COVID has had on it. It is my honor to introduce Michelle Adubato, my sister, but way more importantly, she's the president and CEO of the North Ward Center, a not-for-profit organization in Newark. Marsha Atkin, who is the executive director and CEO of the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, a funder of the work that we do. And also Newark Councilman Anibal Ramos Jr., who represents the North Ward of Newark. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, let's set this up. The role of not-for-profits, Marsha, describe the role of nonprofit organizations, not just in Newark, not just in the North Ward, and not just the work that Michelle and her colleagues do at the North Ward Center, but why are nonprofits more important than ever before in the age of COVID? Oh, my goodness. Um, nonprofits um, serve people who are in need throughout our communities. So it could be people who are hungry. It could be people with special needs of all ages. Um, nonprofits run cultural institutions. Nonprofits run schools. Nonprofits run all kinds of organizations that we depend upon as a society to, um, to help improve the quality of life, provide medical care, provide mental health care, all kinds of care to the people we care about. By the way, to be clear, the Healthcare Foundation also funds not-for-profit organizations, including the North Ward Center, including our not-for-profit production company. Michelle, the work of not just the North Ward Center, but your colleagues in the nonprofit world, not, by the way, huge financial challenges, not just for us, but for everyone. But how do you provide the services you provide in a community so devastated by COVID with serious funding challenges? It's not a choice. We have to provide these services. We are on the front line of this. Um, if we don't do it, um, no one else will. And without the help of foundations like the Healthcare Foundation, you know, we would not be able to do that. And what, what I mean, I'm going to give you a quick. I'm going to give you a quick example. Sure. When this hit back in March, I also run. I founded the Center for Autism. This is an organization where these are adults, 50 adults. Uh, you know, we provide day-to-day uh, -day services um, for them. They had to be home, obviously. We were shut down. We couldn't allow it. We couldn't allow them just to be home. We had to provide some sort of services. The immediate, first thing I did was, what are we going to do? Who are we going to go to? I thought, I thought of Marsha. I did, because she's my go-to person. She's, and, and the Healthcare Foundation had said there are emergency grants out there. So we immediately applied for an emergency grant within two weeks, and this is unheard of. Within two weeks, we were able to get ev uh, every single one of our clients a Chromebook, set it up in their house, and today they are virtually streaming, live streaming for five to six hours with other type of services. That's all because of the Healthcare Foundation. Well, and, and so we don't turn this into a, a commercial spot for the Healthcare Foundation, um, which is warranted, but that's not our goal. I want to ask you, Councilman, someone says, hey, wait a minute, isn't that the role of government? Shouldn't government be doing these things? Government can do only so much. Fair, Councilman? Very true, Steve. I mean, we're very fortunate to have organizations like the North War Center, uh, foundations like the Healthcare Foundation in New Jersey. You know, I'll give you one example. Um, here in Essex County, we typically have an average of about 3,000 seniors that attend nutrition sites uh, throughout the county of Essex on a daily basis. These, these nutrition sites provide, uh, you know, access to, to healthcare information, uh, nutritious meals, you know, other types of support services. And during this COVID crisis, you know, naturally these centers were, were shut down. And thanks to the, the county and the city's partnership, with organizations like the North War Center, Focus, uh, and a number of other non-for-profit groups, we were able to transition very quickly into uh, delivering meals at home. 
uh, which was a, a, a quite an undertaking. And, and Michelle and I had an opportunity to talk regularly to, to see how that process was going. And, and that's just one small example of how important it is for, for whether it's a municipality, or the county government, or the state to have you know, very effective partnerships uh, with the nonprofit community so that we can get services delivered even during a, a crisis like the crisis we're in. By the way, let's make it clear, the North Ward of Newark, one, I shouldn't say one-fifth, it's one of five wards in the city. If we make the North Ward of Newark or the larger community of Newark a microcosm of other urban communities across the state and nation, Councilman, real quick, how devastated, how bad did COVID hit the North Ward? Well, it, it, it hit us bad uh, in a number of different ways. We, we, we obviously had the, the, the zip code with the most positive COVID test uh, uh, results, but we also had the largest number of people who were actually tested. Uh, we're home to two of the largest nursing homes uh, in the city of Newark, and just between those two nursing homes, we, we unfortunately lost about 60 uh, residents. Uh, so COVID uh, has hit us hard. Uh, but it has brought out the very best in our community. Uh, we, uh, another example of uh, effective partnership, we partnered with the federally qualified uh, health center known as St. James Healthcare, which is a uh, non-for-profit. And one of our concerns from day one is what do we do with our seniors that are homebound, that are living in our very large senior housing complexes? How do we get them tested? And thanks to that partnership with St. James, which my office was able to set up, you know, we got over 1,400 seniors tested who probably would not have had the opportunity to go out uh, to one of our testing sites. So, so we recognize that testing is fundamental in this process and it's essential in order for us to, to effectively contain this virus. Well said. Marsha, let me follow up with you and I'll go back to Michelle in a second. So Marsha, not-for-profits coming to your foundation, and by the way, um, we've done a whole range of conversations publicly and, and, and offline as well with Marsha about the role of philanthropy. How much pressure is this putting on the philanthropic community, foundations like yours and others, with not-for-profits, more pressure on them than ever before to provide services during COVID when government has less money, nonprofits have less money, and you don't have a bottomless pit of money? <laughs> That's a question we could spend an hour talking about, but, but let me just bifurcate it a little bit. Um, for foundations, the pressure is, um, should we give away more than we normally give away? And if we give away more, if we award more in grants than, than the IRS re requires that we do and that we would normally do, what In this crisis, mean? you mean? You mean in, in this pandemic? In this pandemic, right, I'm as, sorry, as a result ahead. of this pandemic. Um, what does that do to our ability to meet needs next year and the year after and the year after that? Because we would be depleting our endowment. Because as a, we're a foundation that doesn't raise money. We have an endowment and we spend from the endowment. On the other hand, the nonprofits we support are meeting needs that are much greater and more widespread than ever before and having less ability to fundraise, um, to, to have events, um, to, to meet their own budgets. And the Chronicle of Philanthropy just issued a, a survey in its latest issue that says that 13% of the staff of nonprofit organizations across the country has been laid off. That's right. Now, now that's, that's enormous. I mean, that means that nonprofits have to do more with fewer people. And, and they have to do more in ways that cost money with less funding to do that. So, um, you know, Michelle just talked about buying Chromebooks for, for all her 
her uh, at the Center clients. for Autism. Yeah, for all her clients. Schools have to do that. People who provide mental health services have to do that. Um, it's it's endless. And as you said, Steve, our um, our endowment is not endless. So there's that tension all the time. But we at the Healthcare Foundation vowed that we were going to do all that we could to meet this crisis. And so far, we've given away about four million dollars in in grants during this period. During this so period. say March to when we're taping in middle right. toward the late end of August. Seriously. Seriously. Michelle, let me ask you this. Our not-for-profit, the Caucus Educational Corporation, uh, Corporation, obviously we innovate, we're creative, we had to adapt, we're doing, we're not in a studio at NJTV or WNET at the Tisch Studio in New York. We look forward to being back in those studios, but we're not there now. Our level of innovation is off the charts. What about yours at the North Ward Center and the need for nonprofits to be incredibly innovative in these times and do more with less? Well, Besides being innovative, I think one of the things that we have to look at is relationships, okay? If you just began, if one thing nonprofits need, need to learn from this is you need to have good relationships with your council person, okay? Anibal and I would have our, remember our Friday morning breakfast that we, that we miss, right? We miss our breakfasts. And we would just meet just to talk. And he would talk to me about things that are going on. So we would make sure that, you know, and Eva and I have had a, a you know, relationship for many years. So when I called him, it was an easy call. Um, Marsha, the same thing. So one of the things nonprofits have to learn about this is you need to know who your community leaders are, not just your community. You need to have a relationship. And one thing I'm going to say about the North Ward is I really think that we are a lesson to look at to say how you should lead in a neighborhood. Anibal Ramos has been out there on the street, okay? He is all, I worry for him, and he has his mask, and he's doing his social distancing, but he is out there. By the way, and let's he, disclose, Michelle won't say it, I will. Michelle uh, suffered from COVID in a very serious way early on. Check out our uh, lessons in leadership program we do with Michelle. That's a big part of it. I'm sorry, pick up your point, Michelle, about Anibal. Point being is that our community in the North Ward, although we were the hardest hit, because we were, they knew we were still there. We didn't abandon our community. And one of the reasons why we were able to do that is because of the strong leadership of, of our councilmen, but also because of nonprofits and because of our relationships and also the mayor. I think the mayor has done an outstanding mayor job. Mayor Roz Baraka. Absolutely. To, to make our community feel that we will not abandon you. We're right there with you. And that's an important thing. A few minutes left. Um, Anipa, let me ask you this. Disproportionately, the COVID has disproportionately affected people who are black and brown, black um, Americans, Hispanic Americans, others. The North Ward is largely, describe the population of the North Ward for folks. It's, a, it's pre predominantly Hispanic, uh, and within the Hispanic uh, community, you have a cross-section of, of individuals primarily from Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Ecuador. Uh, we do have an emerging African-American community as well, and that's one of the reasons why we've really zeroed in on setting up these strategic partnerships around testing, because like Michelle mentioned earlier, uh, especially with our immigrant population, there's a sense of distrust with, with government, and that's that's a population within the city 
that the mayor, myself, and others have really focused on to, to, to get more actively involved in getting testing. Marshall, final comments on this. Your foundation, the philanthropic community, how united is the philanthropic community in the mission that you just described during COVID? Or is every foundation, every philanthropic organization on, on their own? Oh, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle of what, what you're saying. Um, we definitely talk with each other. Um, there's been a, a, a pooled fund set up that the United Way is housing um, that many of us have contributed to, and it's, it's independent foundations like ours, it's corporate foundations, um, it's a whole range of foundations, and that fund is, is addressing urgent, immediate problems, mid-range problems, and also long-range problems in, in health, in housing, in food, in small businesses, um, all kinds of concerns that are caused by COVID-19. Um, on the other hand, we, we do all operate on different um, schedules and in different, um, we give grants in different ways. So I think there's a little bit of each. Yeah. Michelle, final words here. Reason for not-for-profits to be optimistic moving forward in these incredibly challenging times. Go ahead. We have to stay strong together. Um, this is a pandemic like no other. And the only way we are going to get through this is if we continue to be cohesive as a community. And that's we always have to have hope because this too will end. How we get there matters. What we do today matters for what we do tomorrow. To Michelle, to Marsha, to, to Anibal Ramos, I want to thank uh, all of you for joining us, not, not just to talk about the role of not-for-profits, but to look at the North Ward of Newark is a microcosm of urban communities across New Jersey and America. Thanks uh, to all of you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Steve. I'm Steve Adubato. Stay with us. We will be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Hi, I'm Governor Tom Kane. A dear friend of mine had aphasia, which is a language disorder that occurs from a brain injury or a stroke. It robs a person's ability to communicate, but it doesn't affect their intellect. Programs and services offered at the Adler Aphasia Center help to improve my friend's communication skills, as well as her self-confidence and quality of life. Most importantly, she was among people who understood her. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with aphasia, there is hope. Welcome back, folks. We're now joined by Patrick Colligan, who is uh, state president of the New Jersey State PBA, Policemen's Benevolent Association. Good to see you, Patrick. Same here, Steve, thanks. So let me, let me in a limited time we have, I wanna get right to this. Um, George Floyd murdered on camera, on video, we saw it. The officer's knee was on his neck for eight minutes plus, eight minutes and 30 seconds. Other officers watched, did nothing to try to stop it. On how many levels from a police perspective was that wrong? There was, I haven't, I haven't met the police officer yet uh, here and around the country who's, who thought that that video, there was, there was nothing wrong with that video. I was probably amongst the first in New Jersey to call it a murder. Um, it was, a, it's a, still a difficult video to watch. I think probably most of the world has seen it by now. Uh, it shows us what's wrong with policing. Uh, it certainly is not indicative of all the great officers are out there, but uh, uh, as I've said a lot since May the 25th, since the day that George Floyd was killed, um, until robots do this job, you know that that those horrible, uh, you know those horrible incidents are going to going to continue to occur. Uh, hopefully, you know this narrative has changed. I, I know 
I would be the first to say that we always have, uh, we can always make improvements, but that was, uh, that was a hard video to watch. It continues to be a hard video to watch for anybody who, who, who takes this job seriously, and, and it was a, a tarnish on all of our badges. So people are going to see a graphic on the screen as we talk right now, Pat, that simply says confronting racism. That is a long-standing series that we're involved in, we're committed to, and will not end anytime soon. So in that spirit, how do we confront racism, but at the same time, not have many police officers have said to me privately, and some have said it publicly, have police feel under siege? How do we do that, Pat? Well, it's it's never even before the murder of George Floyd. There's there's it's very difficult for us on the law enforcement side. You know, I'm certainly not African American. I I, I didn't grow up, you know, in a in a in a in a hard community, a tough community, and many officers didn't. So it's very hard, quite frankly, and being blunt, it's hard for us to know that side of the story. On the other side, though. Um, sometimes when, when law enforcement is looking at a video or a prosecutor is looking at a video, uh, we look at it from a different perspective than, than the average citizen. Um, I think it is, is, as hard as that video is to look at, when you look at the, the beating of Rodney King, um, those officers were exonerated because, you know, Rodney King never really stopped resisting arrest. And, and that's from a law enforcement perspective. And the reason that the jury who sits there for weeks on end and listens to all the use of force issues and all the legal uh, issues. And again, I'm not saying it's not an easy video to watch, but, but from a law enforcement perspective, when somebody stops resisting arrest, force on the police side usually, not always, but usually stops. Uh, so at the end of the day, um, you know, it's very difficult for us to get the perspective of, of you know, the other side of law enforcement, and it's very difficult for the other side of law enforcement to see what and why we do. When we're making an arrest, when somebody's resisting arrest, no matter how quick it ends, it's very difficult to watch. Whether you're a great adventure and they're just being handcuffed, I mean, your kids are watching somebody's, somebody's uh, you know, we're taking away their right of freedom. So it's a hard thing to watch somebody resisting arrest and the officers doing whatever they are required to do under the law to get but Patrick, let me, let me, let me, there are two issues here. First of all, there's none of, none of us who have ever, any of us who have, we just haven't served in your capacity or your, your brothers and sisters, so we don't know. However, those other cops who were standing there watching that cop with, on his knee, with his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight plus minutes, what responsibility do they have and what does that say about the culture, not just in Minneapolis, but I mean, would most cops, with a commanding officer or superior officer with his knee on the neck of, uh, of someone who's saying, I can't breathe, dying right in front of him with people with a video camera right there. I mean, what, what kind of culture are we talking about that says they don't try to stop it? Well, I will, I will strongly say that that video shocked the conscience which is why we're having this discussion now, which is why- But not just the knee on the neck, it's those other cops too. And it's not and about attacking cops, it's asking the question, how do you want to police yourselves? What I want to say, Steve, is that video is so egregious on every aspect and, and all those officers were charged. And, and that is not the norm. That's why that one video from May the 25th has changed policing profoundly. Because, you know, that, that is, that is a, 
I'm not going to say it's a once in a lifetime video. I, I hope it's not. Unfortunately, it's not, Pat, and we know that. It, it's not. There are too many but, other videos. But it's a rare video to have that many officers sitting there and watching. It's a rare video, Steve. Do you believe police officers right now, the president has said this as we taped this program on August 13th, the president has said that police officers, the police are under siege, they can't do their job, particularly in urban communities. Do you believe that's accurate? I believe it a thousand percent. And you can look at, you can look at Portland, you can look at Seattle. My friends in New York City, I'm close with the New York City PBA president and, and, and his board. They are handcuffed. There's nothing that. What does that mean, Pat? What does that mean to be handcuffed as a cop? We're not. We're not being able. We're not able to continue doing our job. Everything, and, and I'm not saying that there's a there's an issue with videotaping us, but everything is now a video. Everything. Everybody shows up and, and turns the camera on when somebody's resisting arrest. It's now. It's now almost fodder. It's 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 some titillating uh, show to watch somebody resisting arrest. But when de Blasio decided to, to dismantle the anti-crime unit, the, the plain clothes unit, um, you know, and basically those officers were told to stand down, they were, uh, we are hampered from doing our job. We're, there's, there's a reason, you know, the defund the police movement, that experiment has, has already proven how poorly it's working. Uh, how poorly One second, there's defund, Pat. And then there is taking a certain percentage of the police budget and putting it into social services, put it into recreation, put it to other areas, because cops are asked to do so many things that are outside of, quote unquote, traditional law enforcement. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no problem. But when, when we're hampered and, and we're told not to do our jobs, not to make arrests, we see, everybody has the numbers, we see the astounding triple digit percentages of crime going on, New York City, Chicago, and really the urban communities. New Jersey, I'll still defend New Jersey. We, we, we have not been the problem. We have not made the national media because I'm convinced and I know that we have the best trained officers in the entire country. We rank 47th in police-involved deaths. We're the densest state, by far the densest state in the country. Um, so we do a good job here. And it's the reason that you don't see us on CNN and Fox News and, and, and CNBC, because we don't have those problems here. We, of the thousands of protests that we've had, only three really went sideways. We had Trenton, we had Atlantic City, and they just made 85 arrests in the last couple of weeks. Um, and and um, we had Trenton, we had Atlantic City, uh, and we had one other one that went, you know, that okay. had some issues. But they've been largely peaceful. peaceful. Camden was peaceful. Right. And, and by the way, what I'm struck by, and we talked about this with former Governor Christie, he mentioned this uh, in that interview, by the way, check it out. You'll see our website, steveautobato.org. We talked about the Camden police chief who was out there shoulder to shoulder marching with those protesters. Do we not need more of that, Pat? We, look, as I said, our, our, our business has changed profoundly since May the 25th, since George Floyd was killed. Would, would, I, would I ever sit and say, and I've never said that we don't need change, we don't need to improve. We always need to improve. There's no doubt about it. There's, there's need, need for improvement in, in every business, every industry. Um, and if real quick, I'm sorry again for interrupting. Those who say the police unions are an obstacle in the way of police reform, you say? Absolutely not. Uh, we've been a partner, especially with this attorney general. We've been a partner with virtually- Verbeer Graywall, the attorney general. Right, with virtually every single uh, policy he's come out with since he took over, even, even at the end of the last administration with, with Chris Perino, working with the attorney general's office, working to, to, to draft some of these policies, um, and, and not only us, but the ACLU, you know, the other groups that have, that have uh, 
you know, uh, interest in this. So absolutely not. In, it, can you look around the country and say that? You, you probably can. They, they, not in New Jersey? Not in New Jersey. There's, there's just a few police unions. It's, it's, it's the state PBA, uh, another group that, that, that covers municipal uh, officers, and then we have the three state troop reunions. And I work, we work closely together. And, and if anybody says that we're the impediment, uh, doesn't know what we're doing and, and how we partner with the attorney general's office, with the, with the, um, with the legislature. Um, we're, we're kind of the voice of reason sometimes with, with the legislature and drafting bills. Patrick Colligan, who is the uh, president of the New Jersey State Poli Policemen's Benevolent Association. Pat, thank you for joining us. And we thank you and your colleagues for your service every day. There's a lot of work to do um, to improve police minority relations and just frank frankly improving policing overall. Um, but we thank you for joining us. Absolutely. And thanks for letting us uh, get our voice out there. Thanks. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, University Hospital, Gibbons PC, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care, Johnson & Johnson, Berkeley College, the Fidelco Group, and by the Adler Aphasia Center. Promotional support provided by Jaffe Communications and by Meadowlands Chamber. Hi, I'm Governor Tom Kane. A dear friend of mine had aphasia, which is a language disorder that occurs from a brain injury or a stroke. It robs a person's ability to communicate, but it doesn't affect their intellect. Programs and services offered at the Adler Aphasia Center help to improve my friend's communication skills, as well as her self-confidence and quality of life. Most importantly, she was among people who understood her. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with aphasia, there is hope.